I'm Jane Takagi of Third World Newsreel, a progressive media center that nurtures and promotes media by and about people of color and social justice issues through education, distribution, production, exhibition, and training. We're pleased to welcome you to our event tonight, Abolition Not Assimilation, a retrospective of Christine Choi and Third World Newsreel. I want to mention our partners in this program, Visual Communications, VC, our longtime sister organization, a media center in Los Angeles that develops and supports Asian American and Pacific Islander filmmakers and media artists. VC is responsible for this whole month's Asian Pacific Virtual Showcase, a collaboration with many groups that our films are a part of. Uh, please check out all the films. The link will be in the chat. Um, also, our co-sponsors are the Documentary Forum at CCNY, the Asian Pacific American Institute at NYU, and the Asian American and Asian Research Institute of CUNY, ARI. Before we continue, though, I want first to have you join me in acknowledging that in New York, we are on the unceded territory of the Lenni Lenape, Canarsie, Shinnecock, and Muncie peoples. We acknowledge and challenge the harm that continues to be inflicted upon indigenous and people of color communities here and abroad, which is why we all have to be part of the struggle for rights, equality, justice, and change. Now let me introduce um, Peter Kim, um, and who's going to curate, who curated and will moderate this evening. But I just remember that before I introduce him, I'm supposed to show a clip, so let me do that. You'll have to bear with me a second, though, so I make sure I can share the screen correctly. Depends on the places we live in and the way we live to the life in prison. There's no difference. The only difference may be that in our communities, the bars are invisible and we don't see them, and in the prison, you do. Not beast, and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. They mace me, blind me, uh, kick me in the cell. I was told I, I couldn't defend myself because I had these chains and shackles on. Whenever there's trouble, we have to run away. I want to go back. One of the most dramatic refugee events was the fall of Saigon in 1975. It happened suddenly. It happened in a situation where there were literally hundreds of thousands of South Vietnamese who had come to work very closely with our armed forces and who were therefore in danger of, of losing their lives or their liberty. Refugees are, at least at this point, at this moment, defending themselves, defending their motive for leaving Vietnam by saying that they are in America because uh, this is the land of hope. Uh, 
that is, uh, is going to be shattered. That kind of dream is going to be shattered. In our fishing communities, there's outright competition. Vietnamese fishermen coming in to areas that Americans have been fishing for generations. They're creating problems. Our supermarket is threatening to close up and move away because of pilgrimage. I would like to see someone in Philadelphia pay attention to the refugee problem in Walnut Hill. It's, it's, it's the old problem of pitting poor people against poor people, and you can control them this way. As you see, we left our country, our families, and all the things which are familiar to us, to look for freedom, to buy freedom at a very expensive price, and to come here to work and find all the hatred and jealousy. That makes us disappointed. We live with that reality of division now last 40 years. But before that, it was all it's only one Korea. A tragic division of uh, Korea, not only in terms of uh, two different camps between North and South Korea, but the casualties and the consequences of that division for the millions of uh, families, members, divided into North and South Korea. That is a most uh, serious human tragedy that we have to face now. I was born in communist China. I didn't have a father. He got stuck during the war in South Korea. So we were completely cut off from him. I remember my mother praying at night and telling me, your father is watching the same stars. In China, I heard that North Korea was great. The South was horrible. Then in 1962, my family was allowed to reunite with my father in South Korea. All of a sudden, the South was wonderful. The North was terrible. It was typical of a Korea's contradictions, not to mention for a kid, pretty confusing. Okay. Um, thanks for watching. Those were clips from uh, all four films that uh, were featured in the virtual showcase. And now I'd like to introduce Peter Kim George, who um, is the, going to moderate for us tonight, and he curated this program as well. Um, Peter, uh, Peter Kim George is a film critic, a lecturer in Korean cinema, and a playwright based in New York in the UK. And in fact, he's joining us from UK, the UK tonight. Thanks for everyone for, for tuning in, uh, wherever everyone is. Um, uh, really excited. Um, so, so how it's going to go tonight is we're going to um, introduce the series and the panelists, and then we're going to have a conversation around the films, and then we'll have a chance to talk about the panelists' work um, and how the films relate to issues we're all facing today. Um, but first, I wanted to just uh, quickly talk about the institutional history of Third World Newsreel, which I think is really important. Um, so Third World Newsreel um, was founded in 1972 um, and released a statement at that time called Act First, Then Speak. Um, the goal 
was to go beyond the limitations of white filmmakers and filmmaking and, and to build a working relationship with third world organizations and community people and show the connections between race, class, and U.S. colonialism. So in that spirit, um, this series is sort of what I've been um, conceiving of for May AAPI Month. Um, and these are four films of Christine Choi and her collaborators produced by DWN that are experimental and activist um, in their focus. Um, these films, rather than asking what it takes for Asians to be good Americans, I think these films interrogate the legacies of incarceration and imperialism that all that all Americans inherit. And rather than assimilation, these films point us to the necessary abolition of prisons and military bases. Choi's lens never loses sight of what is human and universal, whether it's the loss of a loved one or searching for home. Um, but these things are never subordinated to the political nor can be thought of outside of a political context. So I think in this way, choice films are a valuable lesson in how to think about identity and politics today. Um, when I was curating the series, I was really thinking about uh, Kathy Park Hong's point in her book that came out last year, Minor Feelings, when she writes about the fact that it shouldn't be the goal of Asian Americans to merge into whiteness or to assimilate. Becoming white should not be the ideological goal Rather, we can shed light on the U.S. colonial and neocolonial proje projects abroad uh, and mass incarceration at home that makes life unlivable for people of color. So now I'll just in briefly introduce um, our panelists and we'll take some time so everyone can speak a little bit more about themselves and their projects and um, also their interest in the films in this series. So first we have Sarah Ahn. Sarah Ahn has been active in organizing with Korean, Chinese, and Latino workers at Flushing Workers Center since 2014. FWC has been fighting wage theft and sweatshop conditions facing workers and aims to unite workers from all industries and backgrounds to address the root cause of our deteriorating working and living conditions. She lives and works in Queens. Joo Hyun Park, they them, is a writer of the Korean diaspora and a member of No Do for Korean Community Development. They currently reside in Lenape lands, known as Brooklyn. Nodo Korean for Stepping Stones, is an NYC-based multi-generational organization of Koreans struggling for decolonization in Korea and here on Turtle Island. Nodo was founded in 1999 and has worked for more than 20 years to advance peace and reunification in Korea and contribute to local and global people's struggles against war, racism, and all forms of social and economic injustice. And Kipta Kukurish uh, is the co-deputy editor of Film Comet magazine and a talks programmer at the New York Film Festival. Uh, she's also a, a contributor to the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, Sight and Sound, Reverse Shot, the Criterion Collection, Village Voice, and Cinemascope and other publications, and has served on the selection committees of the Mumbai Film Festival and the Berlin Critics Week. Her work has been recognized with the 2018 National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Award the 2019 Southern California Journalism Award, among other honors. And of course, Christine Choi. Christine co-founded Third World Newsreel in 1972 with fellow filmmaker Susan Robeson. During her, her tenure, Choi directed documentary films on the 1971 Attica Prison Uprising, the life of women in U.S. prisons, and the history of social activism in New York City's Chinatown, as well as documentaries on the division of the Korean Peninsula and Namibia's struggle for independence from South Africa among others. Uh, after leaving Third World Newsreel, Choi went on to produce and direct more than 70 works and earned an Academy Award nomination 
along with Rene Tajima Pena for their disturbed documentary, Who Killed Vincent Chin? So I want to take some time now to everyone uh, on the panel can introduce themselves uh, in their own voice and talk a little bit about your work and uh, yeah, um, what what um, interests you in, in the series and sort of what films you're passionate about. So we can just kind of go around whatever this in this uh, mosaic. Um, yeah, whoever uh, wants to go first. Maybe Sarah. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe to um, avoid the awkward pauses. Yes, exactly. In the order. Um, is this a good time for me to screen the, the short part of the film, or should I just introduce myself? Rather? Uh, it's up to you. I think if you if you like to screen it here now, I think that's... Okay, that's, that's... sure. So um, I actually wanted to screen... Um, well, hello first. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Sarah um, with the Fleshing Worker Center. Um, I wanted to sh uh, share a short film because I thought it was very um, coincidental that I was invited to join this wonderful panel uh, because uh, the, the work that I'll be speaking about tonight is also being showcased um, in, in the same you know, film showcase. So I will turn to that for one second. I'm just going to show like a minute, minute and a half. Um, so I'll give more context to that, but... Um, yeah, people want to check it out. It's in the same showcase. It's called a 24-hour workday. Um, we can have, yeah, Juhyun. Yeah, I can go next. Um, I can offer a brief introduction of Norutol. Uh, Norutol is a diaspora, a group of diaspora Koreans and comrades based in the Napeho King slash New York. We mobilize our membership to advance peace, decolonization, and self-determination in Korea and Turtle Island slash North America. Uh, we use political education, collective action, and practice principled solidarity to achieve our mission. Uh, one of our consistent programs has been the Korea Education and Exposure Program, which has taken delegations of people of Korean descent to North and South Korea. Both programs meet with a range of organizations and groups uh, in South Korea that includes unions, adoptee, justice activists, organizers, farmers, and uh, different sites of ongoing struggle, such as Jeju and uh, Sosongmi Village, where that is being built. Um, in North Korea, this uh, also includes meeting with students, uh, visits to cooperative farms, hospitals, and historic sites like the site of the Shincheon Massacre, where U.S. and South Korean forces killed between 30 and 50,000 people in 1951. Uh, in 2017, our program to North Korea was put on hold because of Trump's travel ban, which we are hoping to overturn. Um, and in relation to Christine Choi's uh, films, uh, I think... Yeah, uh, Poems Apart is definitely a movie that uh, is very important to me. Um, I also watched uh, Bittersweet Survival in college uh, as part of a class, so it's definitely very cool to be uh, on this panel. And um, last but not least, just want to thank uh, Liberal Newsreel and uh, everyone who put this together for inviting us. Right, Devika. Sure. Uh, first of all, you know, so happy to be here. And I have to say, I'm finding it hard to follow uh, Sarah and Juhin because uh, I write about movies, which um, doesn't often feel like the most politically meaningful thing to do. As uh, Peter said, I uh, am the co-deputy editor of Film Comment magazine. I program talks for the New York Film Festival and do other programming and uh, criticism work. 
But, you know, I'm really interested in thinking about how uh, values of solidarity and abolition uh, can maybe be, uh, you know, made a part of our everyday lives or professional lives. So, um, and the Christine's work and the work of the Third World Newsreel in general, I think, has helped me clarify the vocation of art and criticism and film a little more. Um, in the world, I think uh, that there it's, there's a way in which it both like brings us closer to histories and also points us to the future and helps us imagine uh, pasts and futures that, you know, including, uh, you know, abolitionist futures and uh, visions of solidarity that we might find hard to envision in our everyday and intimate lives. Um, and so that has always, um, you know, I found that really inspiring about the work of the Third World Newsreel. And, um, you know, I'm excited to sort of see how my critical perspective can contribute to that effort in an ongoing way. Awesome. Thanks. And Christine, do you have anything that you want to add at this point? We'll... Hey. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I am, I should be a stand-up comedian instead of a filmmaker, don't you think, you know? Because I talk, the stuff coming out of my mouth sometimes does not process through my brains. I'm a very spontaneous. First of all, it is not retrospective. I made more than five movies. So this is like an early, early period of my career. And you asked me why I was become a filmmaker. No clue, no idea. All I remember, it was I joined a, <clears throat> a radical organization called New Zero, N-E-W-S-R-E-E-L. I went in, they told me they don't believe in Hollywood, they don't believe in films, they don't believe in television, they don't believe <laughs> They were propaganda group. And they had, <clears throat> it was a part of the arm for what we call at the time SDS, Student for the Democratic Society, yeah. which is off <clears throat> a same parallel with the SNCC, which was basically uh, uh, supporting African American, you know, uh, cause. They made me to take a class called PE. I said, why do I need a physical education? Maybe I'm too skinny. No, no, no. It's a political education. <laughs> okay. So we had to study, you know, all kinds of the boys, you know, book and, and uh, labors and told the story, etc. And then I had to do the night shift, the meaning cleaning films, cleaning and participating, you know, different kind of uh, activities that they call. Uh, I forgot. One day, um, I, I was the only non-white, and I met Sue Robson. Sue Robson is Paul Robson's granddaughter, Othello, you know, Old Man River, in Canada. And I was sent to by Newsreel to document the women's conference in Vancouver between 
American woman meeting with a North Vietnamese woman, and I was carrying around this little camera. And Sue came to me, "Are you a filmmaker?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> Can I join you? I said, "Sure." So that's how I met Sue, and I recruited her into Newsreel. Now, our first assignment it was oh, and then that's when New York City subway went up from twenty five cents to seventy five cents. Okay, a lot of people jumping over the turnstile, and me and Sue. Sue was in high school, Hunter High School, or JT one, you know, you know, good school. Yeah, we jumping on the turnstile and we got arrested. La la, you know. And they asked us, "Do you have ID? Do you have any money?" Of course, we said, "No, no, no." So we were arrested. We were put into 38th precinct, which is near 42nd Street. Overnight, me and Sue was in the detention house, <laughs> freezing cold, and you know, was a women's precinct, you know. And all the girls were, you know, they were like the street workers. They were very nice. They were telling us their stories, the Johns, and all that. It was a fascinating story. And next day, we were arranged to go to the the, the court. I was so skinny, my handcuff came out, and I was gonna run. Sue said, "No, you're not gonna run." You know. So we went to court. We all pleaded guilty, and Sue's father. Of course, pay the fine. I never pay the fine until the many, many, many years later when I received my notification that I was being awarded for American citizen, and that's when the fine came, and I had to pay double or triple or some amount of money. That's how I met Sue. Our first assignment and newsreel says, "Go to Attica. There was a rebellion." Okay. So we had this huge camera, JT. You know, every BL designed for big bill men. You know, you know, huge with a Mickey Mouse. And we took the the the, the camera and the recording, and we drove me and Sue and Elaine. And Elaine had a bladdery problem, so she had to stay in the car because it was a men's prison. And we got to the front door. And the warden came up. So, what are you doing, girls? I said, "Hi, we here make a movie." And do you know what? Coming in. Can you believe it? No, nothing. Those days were easy. So we got in, and was a major prison uprising for money, money issues. You know, I mean, food, you know, all kinds of things. And they just talk, talk, talk nonstop. And we just recorded, and we came back. We came back, and we didn't know what to do with that film. And then, ironically, Nelson Rockefeller at the time was governor, sending the national guard, national、uh, troops, Shh, shut down everyone. That footage was documented by. Larry Bola, at the time he was a cameraman at the ABC in the Buffalo station, and they refused to use it. So he contacted Newsreel, and we got that footage, and just you know, it's a historical, you know, and we reconstructed the story and saying teach our children. 
Why teach your children? It's because many of us, like the people of color, we really don't know our own history. So, and of course, we have a no understanding about music rights or anything. So, which, uh, what, uh, what song do you like? He said, Oh, I like Curtis Mayfield. Okay, let's use Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> so, that, that's how the film was done. And I think it was done in black and white. Newsreel at the time, it was, we were not allowed to put our name as director, producer, no credits. It's machine gun, you know. <laughs> and the film became quite uh, well received and we sold it to Dutch television. I said, whoops, you can actually make a documentary film and make it some money, you know. <laughs> and, uh, it was uh, received a very uh, good, uh, received an award in a, uh, a, a black film festival at Howard University, but I was not allowed to go because I was not black. So Sue so, And that's how me and Sue started it. And partially because we were detained in 38 pre- uh, precinct after doing the after doing the uh, uh, Attica, then we realized this huge population of female you know, uh, prisoners. And that's when we went to North Raleigh, North Carolina, and did Inside Women Inside. Right. And subsequently, um, there was a major demonstration happening in Chinatown. And by then, I was sort of, a, sort of understand the film language, and I decided to document. And uh, that's the film from Spike to Spindle. In fact, historically, Spike to Spindle was the first color, you know, film, then black and white. And people actually had the credit. And I used Bob Marley's song, Stand Up, Get Up, very didactic, you know. But unfortunately, that was the only documentation of a Chinatown's swap shop without knowing, literally, money. And I was making Who Killed Vincent Chin? What caused all the resentment towards the you know, Asians had a lot to do with the. So I, I do want to, yeah, that's uh, actually, Christine, I was going to ask you what your experience was like filming. Spikes to spend those and teach your children. So this is perfect. I want to ask our panelists. It's also related because I didn't understand the 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 whole notion of outsourcing. Right. Spike to spindle was the last last I think era of the garment factory in New York City, and I didn't understand they were outsourcing. All of a sudden. You know, there were no more garment factories. They also say to 13 now, you know, Union State in the United States, you yeah. know, other yeah. states. And then they also say to Mexico, then Bangladesh, and then China, and et cetera. Similarly, same time, and a few years later, they were outsourcing the parts, you know, order parts to many different, you know, non union country. And uh, unfortunately, the union leaders never addressed the issue. And they were using the race issue to be, you know, to uh, divide and 
try to make the, the issue saying because the Asians are taking over, you know, the industry. Yeah. So it's a very related. The funny thing is all these years, and I have learned a lot, you know, and they're all re- very much related. And talking about Attica, talking about inside woman inside, Black Lives Matters, it already started at the time, but there was no terminology for it. We did not know the Black Lives Matters. So today, what is happening today, yeah, the Black yeah. Lives Matters, it becomes a major issue to address the discrimination, systematic discrimination against African-American and people of color. Well, well it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, Christine, because right now, you know, um, uh, the Attica Prison Rebellion was sparked in some, in some kind by the death of Black Panther Fred Hampton, which has kind of gotten more notoriety now with, with the film, um, I'm forgetting the name now. I think, uh, can someone, what's, what's the name of the film that features Fred Hampton? Um, it's just, Judas and the Black Messiah. Exactly, Judas and the Black Messiah. Right. So it's it's kind of in popular culture now, but it's it's you know it's I think it's important to remember that the the Black Panthers were very much not sort of um, you know they were they were sort of not seen as 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 legitimate by a lot of conservatives, and it certainly was not part of the uh, popular mainstream at the time. But just to backtrack, Christine, um, should mention that Susan Robeson, your 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 co filmmaker. Um, yeah, her grandfather Paul Robeson was an activist, musician, and actor who faced persecution from the from from the U.S. government for his politics. Um, so um, I do want to ask about Spikes of Spindles and Teacher Children. Um, and this is for all the panelists. Um, how do you think um, uh, people today can learn from from these films? Kind of, what does it sort of inform us about our current our current moment? Um, clearly, mass incarceration is. Is as big of a problem as ever as as it was starting in the seventies. Um, yeah, I'll just kind of open it up. Mm-hmm. Well, as as you can see, is very much systematically planned. Not before the black matter, black life matters. You gotta look at it during the Hueck. A lot about progressive Hollywood filmmakers were blacklisted. Okay, you know by, you know, the government, you know. Um, there was always, a, in, a, on the other hand, I must say very clearly, okay, as an Asian, okay, I do appreciate this country for we do have freedom of speech. Many of the Asian countries do not have, as you know, okay. I do really, you know, appreciate that. And I also had to very, very clarify the whole terminology, quote, Asian-American, we have to readdress that term, you know, because Asian-American is a terminology started with the Monaghan, you know, we all melt together, you know, we all send lump sum. The differences between Asian diaspora, African-Americans and Latinos are very different. Number one, Latinos, with the exception of Brazil, speak some language. They were pretty much occupied, dominated by Spaniards, same religion, okay, Catholicism. African-Americans were 
brought to United States from different parts of Africa. JT and me, we went to Angola, Zambia. We actually knew, you know, where the ports, different slaves were shipped out, you know, and they shipped out from different region and from different, complete different background, different language to United States. So they were not able to articulate, you know, they didn't have a common language. It's what, whereas Asians are very different. We from China, Japan, Korea, you know, Southeast Asia, India, you know, Philippines, you name it, okay? It's a different kind of composition that we came here, early immigrants came, like railroad workers, didn't speak English, they're the Chinese from Canton. And then you subsequently, 1965, when United States changed its immigration law from 2,000 per country to 20,000 per country immigrants to United States. Why? Because America needs cheap labor. Why? Because America was stuck in the Vietnam War. Why? They need laborers. They don't have to train just as a factory worker. Like, Filipino nurses. And it's a very much strategically planned, this whole immigration. And we came here and we were told that we are Asian America, but in fact, we are not. Okay. I mean, I do films about people who do not have voice. Partially, it's my own personal background because I'm half Korean, half Chinese, and some blood of Russia, you know, Mongolian. And in China, you know, we were the communist China, of course, you know. And then when we moved to Korea and we were looked down because they call us Jankolet. Jankolet actually translated from Jap- Japanese means Chinese, you know, in. But Koreans twisted, made us uh, like a Jankolet is like so almost like a scumbag, you know. So among the Asians, we also have a lot of a, a lot of discrimination from each each you know, nationality. So lumping us together in itself is problematic, you know. And I hope the new generation able to like really having a different kind of perspective and articulate our history in different ways, rather than. And on top of that, partially I became a filmmaker is I got pissed off. <laughs> I just got pissed off seeing there was no Asian images, you know, in the mass media. I re- remember Jack Chen from Chinatown History Project and myself was invited to the University of Pennsylvania to give a talk about Asian America. And Jack is definitely Asian American, born in the United States. And me as an immigrant, okay, we went to Bulger Institute and we had to present the images of Asian Americans. And Jack did a lot of research in terms of historical depiction of Asian population. And I started the research in terms of mass media. Of course, you know, you see, you know, it's ridiculous images of, you know, how we've been depicted because it were replaceable, you know, 
Japanese can play Chinese, Chinese can play Koreans, and American public had no clue about it. And that particular part of uh, uh, the education or non-education that affect me a great deal. So I am right now still want to know young Asian Americans, young Asians in America and to both understand their own nationality and how their own personal motherland and became a part of overall fabric of Asian community. And that's what I'm so happy. And that, that you know, South Indians, Koreans, Japanese, you know, Filipinos, you know, Vietnamese, you know, young generation begin to speak out about their own experience. I think both films also have this improvised mixed media style that kind of gives them the sense of urgency that I always find really interesting. Um, so, yeah, um, Sarah or Juhyun or Devika, do you have anything that you wanted to add about these two films? Sure. Um... I actually haven't had the opportunity to watch the films. I'm very embarrassed. I'm not a huge <laughs> documentary um, a film watcher, but I plan to. I plan to go and watch them. But I also do want to say, you know, even though I haven't seen them, I think I can speak to the importance of them, right? Um, because it, you know, even as um, the, you know, the the short clip I showed before, I think documentary filmmaking has always provided, you know, Christine, like you said, a, a, a voice for, um, you know, and a platform for people that often don't, you know, we don't see, right, the lives and, you know, the, um, you know, the stories of these people. But also much more than that, I think also people sort of innate, um fighting spirit and revolutionary spirit that a lot of people also have. And I, I, I think from just those clips that I saw, um, you also had an eye and an interest to sort of document that, right? So not only just to portray the, the, the people in your films as, as the victims, right? But as those who are, you know, sort of taking their, you know, their lives and their fates into their own hands, right? And becoming, you know, those agents of change. Um, and that's very much, I think, the work that we try to do at the Worker Center, right? Um, to say, you know, um, as working people, we are very marginalized. We are, you know, um, you know, we don't have the access and all of those things. But actually, we we have um, uh, we have all of the 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 power, right? Um, you know, by coming together and by sort of um, you know learning from each other and struggling with each other, we have the capacity to truly transform society. Um, and I think, you know, uh, you also spoke a bit about, you know, the sort of the identity of the Asian, you know, the, um, you know, what, what, you know, kind of, um, how that's changed over time and it reflected in your films. Um, you know, I think that your films also show that in some ways, um, you know, a lot hasn't changed, right? Um, this, you know, you talked about in your, your Chinatown film, the, the sort of, um, you know, sort of racist notion of, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the model, right, the industrious Asian worker, right, that we're here, we're happy to work, you know, that's, that's very much what we're fighting uh, as the home attendants as well, right, in the short film that I showed, you know, these women are working 24 hours a day, we have this insane system in New York State, where, you know, uh, it's, it's predominantly, I would say, vastly immigrant women, women of color, um, and, you know, it's, it's a very good depiction of how, um, you know, deeply the racism, sexism still is alive in our society, right? Why is it okay 
for these women to be working, you know, the, under such inhumane conditions. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the, the, just, um, uh, uh, you know, they're fighting. So Lai, who you saw in the film, works for um, Chinese American Planning Council, a very well-known um, Asian American organization, right? Um, but they actually exploit their their own, right? Exploit their own workers and exploit also our own community because those are the people that they provide services for. Um, and so, you know, and, and actually when the women first started to speak out and say, you know, uh, this is, um, you know, this is inhumane, right? This is violence. You know, they've been really, um, inspired recently by or energized by all the discussions of violence. Um, because, you know, they're saying this is violence, right? What we face on the daily, it's not just, you know, the street rounds. It's not just, you know, these sort of random encounters between people, but there is a systemic violence, you know, that they're experiencing day in and day out. Um, and in response to that, you know, CPC, you know, they try to say that, well, you know, these women want to work these 24 hours, right? They, you know, they, they want it. Even if we stopped it, they would find ways to, to, to work it, right? So, you know, I think a lot of this, um, you know, um, you know, is still very much there, you know, and we have to really shine the light on the fact that, you know, on the other hand, it's not only Asian workers, right? It's Latino workers, Black workers who are also working these 24-hour shifts and facing these condi uh, same conditions, um, and so that's also sort of um, uh, the source of um, or the, the potential for unity, right? Um, not just within the Asian, you know, uh, communities, but but beyond, beyond other communities of color. Um, I'll stop there and pass it on to others. Um, yeah, I can I can jump in here. Uh, I think um, you know, building off of what both Christine and and Sarah said. Uh, the films, particularly in the series that you put together, Peter, uh, they made me think about a couple things. Uh, firstly, you know, there's been a lot of conversation recently about anti-Asian violence. I know, Peter, you wanted uh, us to talk about that at some point, so I may be getting ahead of, ahead of things. But, you know, I've been reading and thinking a lot about how or why it is difficult to often to rally politically around anti-Asian violence. And I think there's a couple different things there. First, like as Christine was pointing out, the term Asian or Asian American is so broad that it doesn't often, um, you know, it doesn't feel specific enough often to coalesce into, you know, a coherent form of organizing. I mean, I'm Indian my historical and contemporary experiences growing up in India and as an Indian immigrant are very distinct from those of other, you know, Asian countries. And there are complex relationships between Asian countries. So there are complexities of between India and China or, you know, India and, uh, you know, other countries in South Asia. So I think that's one thing. And the other thing is that um, there isn't as much historical like awareness about the history of Asian immigration to the U.S. and the U.S.'s relationship with Asian countries. A lot of times, uh, you know, especially in the present day, Asian immigrants are viewed as uh, the professional class who immigrated here for, you know, certain kinds of opportunities and I think what these films uh, really demonstrate is the long history of Asian uh, immigration to the U.S. that's been rooted in uh, both the, you know, the history of imperialism and the history of, uh, you know, 
labor trade, you know, and watching spikes to uh, spikes to spindles and watching Korea homes apart really kind of reminded me that, uh, you know, the direct intervention of the U.S., you know, in in Asian countries is like sort of, you know, that it's it's responsible for the Asian diaspora in the U.S. It seems like such an obvious thing to say, but it's often not remembered, you know, that the realities we live in were often created by imperial or or like capitalistic histories. Um, and similarly with spikes to spindles, thinking about, you know, the fact that anti-Asian violence is not just about a, you know, some kind of psychic hatred that a random individual has against a random person on the street. You know, it's part of a long history of exploitation of labor uh, that and the way that that's been presented and, you know, the way that that's been like not often like addressed um, in our like public education. So I, I just thought that these films are really relevant today because even though they were made in the moment, Peter, like you said, they really capture the moment with their mixed media and their, you know, uh, very, very style. They're so important as, um, just historical artifacts to remind us to draw those connections, the historical connections that are often, um, you know, overlooked. And just the final thing I'll say is, you know, they also made me think of how the term Asian American can be glib and can be sort of an umbrella term that can actually get in the way of organizing effectively and paper over uh, nuances. But at the same time, the diaspora can actually be such a productive force of solidarity. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this while watching um, Teach Our Children, watching uh, Homes Apart. Uh, there are the kinds of solidarities that you can build in the diaspora that are maybe not possible in our motherlands. In my case, for instance, you know, India has a history with Pakistan. There's the Indian partition, you know, sort of similar in some ways to the division of Korea. And coming to the States, I came here as a student, it's allowed me to build relationships with individuals and communities and organizers from other diasporas that maybe I wouldn't have had a relationship with if I'd stayed in India. And so it allows us to think of the character, the category Asian American also as an effective political tool for even you know, collective solidarity against imperialism and against exploitation. Um, which uh, the films really reminded me of that because obviously the third world newsreel, uh, the whole project was really embedded in those ideas of solidarity uh, across racial and national lines that at the same time was not ahistorical. So. Yeah. Um, speaking on these uh, historical connections, something that I really appreciate about these four films is that uh, they really ask us to consider both the conditions that Asians come to the U.S. under and also the conditions of this country itself. Uh, the U.S. often positions itself as a savior of Asian people, usually within the context of U.S. wars uh, in our homelands. Um, so how does Attica disrupt that narrative? And how does the Korean War and the Vietnam War contradict that narrative? Um, I think when we start to ask these questions, we can begin to understand the links between the prison system and the military and see them as domestic and international faces of uh, really the same sort of colossus or the same single thing. Um, 
And when we realize that, we understand that the movement for the Black Lives, the demands to defund and abolish the police, are fights against the same enemy on a different terrain. Um, and I think that it's important for us to be aware of this history because uh, we live in a time when uh, the idea of being Asian American can be very watered down, right? It's often very divorced from its original political context as a coalitional term, as an as uh, something with an intentional politic behind it. Uh, and by that, I mean an anti-imperialist politic. Um, and I think, you know, uh, being able to narrate Asian American stories that don't just begin in America, but that, you know, do include a Asia and the conditions in Asia and the Pacific that uh, create our diasporas um, allows us to better understand the um, the political legacy and the um, responsibilities that we have. I'll just say that that's, um, I'm very glad that people are talking to this because that's the whole reason why Federal Newsreel continues to do what it does, right? Is that we want to connect the activism of the past with what's happening now. And you see the issues have remained the same. Um, I think what's um, fascinating about the earlier films that Chris made is that um, at the time when I first saw them, I don't think I felt aware of people being able to be active one. And I wasn't, didn't feel like we were empowered to make, to document ourselves and uh, having, having her take that bold step at a time when there weren't very many Asian American filmmakers um, and filming topics that were not popular, um, I think really opened my eyes and a lot of people's eyes in terms of what, how it is possible for us to take a voice, to document, to make change, and have those films inspire other people to organize and, and act. Yeah. Uh, to continue on with Devika and, and Jihoon, you were just saying, I want to talk about Homes Apart Korea and Big Six Revival. Um, I mean, two films that I think kind of like how you were saying, it connects the domestic and, and um, the U.S. foreign policy and how those things are um, interconnected and how they're kind of um, mutually reinforcing um, forces. Um, I was I was thinking about how, you know, I think um, maybe um, a general public, especially sort of, you know, our age, maybe might be more in tune with um, the Vietnam War, but still the Korean War is still very much a black box. And I think that's what makes Homes Apart so compelling, um, you know, to me, especially. Um, so I'll just sort of give a quick overview for those that are less familiar um, with the Korean War. Uh, the U.S. basically after, after World War II saw the movements towards decolonization in Korea and in Vietnam um, um, happening. And due to Cold War fears, just found those movements unacceptable. Um, and... Um, and then they sort of, um, you know, uh, use these countries of, as theaters of, of, of proxy war. And it's, I think it's also public record now that everyone sort of is more familiar with that um, basically Korea was split into two by two U.S. officials that two U.S. Um, military officials that had no knowledge of Korea used a National Geographic map uh, on the night of Japan's surrender to Korea and effectively split the country in half. Um, and so... Um, and in the ensuing, you know, war seven years later in 52, um, the U.S. military was essentially responsible for the deaths of, you know, over three million Korean lives through um, uh, through displacement, bombing, starvation, imprisonment. Um, so I think these are 
um, very, very uh, important things that people are aware of, especially when thinking about um, U.S. immigration patterns. Um, so, so Christine, I, I did want to ask you something uh, about Homes Apart, especially, which is that it's a very personal story for you and, and your own family history. Um, and your father was, was, was a Korean national living in Korea as you're growing up. Um, I, I, I love the part in the narration when you say you're pissed off because both North and South Korea kept telling you their kind of minders kept telling you what to shoot and not shoot for your documentary. Do you, do you feel like you're able to tell everything that you want to tell in that film? And is there anything that kind of, you know, got left out? This is for JT, you as well. Well, the thing is, you got to understand, North and South has been so divided. There was absolutely no communication. And that's what, it was JTU idea that we have a David Henry want to write a voiceover, wasn't it? Well, David was at the time was rather famous in Butterfly. He wanted his uh, Tony, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, he doesn't even remember he wrote this narration. Kiss my ass. <laughs> yes. But, Peter, you got to understand, I grew up in a communist country. I know the how the commie works. The day me, JT, and Joe Isaki arrived, and we were put in the separate hotel, and every morning, I get a political education called Juche means a self-alliance in Korean. Then I had to translate to JT and John Isaki. Okay, after, I think I only lasted three days or what? I said, no, I'm not doing it. Forget it. Forget it. I'm not doing it. And then the, finally, then we had to go through all the richer tools, you know, community some village, you know, the studio, blah, blah, you know. Everybody's happy that we had to go to the mass game to do with the cars. That was often great. But because I grew up in communist country, because they have this kind of a warped self-pride, they don't want to demonstrate anything negative. Perfectly fine, you know. And we were not there trying to pick any kind of negative stuff. We were basically talking about separate family, okay, family was, um, yeah, JT, you remember, then they told us what to shoot, okay, and one day I just got pissed off, no, no more, okay, and they sort of understood and uh, gave us a little more, more leeway, but we also were penalized by the South Koreans, because we went to North instead of going to South first. How can you go to North first without coming to South? I had to submit all the footage to South Korea KCIA and I walked in the room, all men, not a single woman, and watching the footage. Many of them just fall asleep. This sort of like a censorship of it, you know, KCIA. And they looked at it, they all laughing, they think it's stupid, they look poor, you know. All right, we were granted to shoot in South Korea. But without us knowing, there were so many demonstrations happening 
prior to Olympic. You know, Koreans were very upset. You know, having the Olympic. There was a one thing, and then one of the guys said, "Yankee, go home. Yankee, go home." Okay, South Korean government didn't like that. Okay, <laughs> because they still getting a lot of support from you know America. Uh, but we kept in, and we had to wear gas mask. But one day, I'm just there was no demonstration in North Korea. Everything is very very peaceful. We're not allowed. South Korean. You know the Korean films; they are good. Demo said, "Whoa! They beat the cops. They go, they go into all these streets. They're really, really good at the demonstration and contrast the sort of contrast." Yes, ultimately we found a guy from Ohio. He was visiting his sister after thirty-five years in Nazi, and at the airport. Wow, the moving scene! They crying, crying, and then that's when the government says no more shooting. So we interviewed him in Beijing. You know, mind you, to go to North Korea, there's only two flights a week, and we missed the first flight. So me, JT, and John Isaki, we just had a great time in Beijing. We toured the main tombs. We took, you know. Forbidden Palace. All we did was touring for five days. I have nothing else to do. Then we took it, you know,、uh, went to Pyongyang, and thank God, I do speak Korean. You know that saved me a life. You know, language is so important for next generation Asians. You know, that learn your own mother tongue because it gives. Complete different kind of,、uh, I would say, you know, the, the subtext that you do not have in English language. My Chinese is good, you know. My Korean's okay, not as good as my sister, you know. I also went to school in Japan, so I, I can read Japanese pretty well. But, 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 but let me answer you. Because we were stuck filming, it became sort of a, another kind of unspoken subtext to the film. You done? You、okay. have a great story, though, Christine. You told me once that、um, you went out to get pizza. Was it pizza in North Korea? And you didn't go with the minders, and they freaked out because they thought that if anything happened, you and you maybe got food poisoning. They were afraid that we went outside the hotel. Some food, okay. Right. They, were, they were afraid that you'd be that they'd be accused of poisoning an American filmmaker. I can understand perfectly if you were North Korean because they were being, you know, persecuted by the West for many from Kim Il Sung to Kim Jong Il. You know, I, I don't know the young Kim. You know, and. Was all this lot of anti-North Korean? I mean, you know, when you're in South Korea, they think a North Korean actually have a horn. Same nationality. I mean, kind of propaganda was so severe, and for us to go out to eat in case we get sick, and it will be that's detrimental to the government. I can understand perfectly. You know, that's no、yeah. problem. But do I criticize? The strictness of the uh, 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 control to filming there, 
No, I don't. I don't because if you put yourself in their shoes, they've been isolated for so long from 1950 to today. Korean War was 1950 to 53, and so isolated. They were supported mainly by Russia. Then Russia cut off. Then they got into China. You know, Chinese is iffy. But Korean Peninsula must be united. Must be united, and we need a great leadership. Leadership, perhaps, not necessarily from north or south. It could be a Gandhi. Yeah, could be. I am serious. Could be. You know, uh, we need a visionary person. They're able to unite the north and south together. Aside from. The animosity, the pol- politics, being so much infiltrated by Soviet Union, China, and America, for the matter. You know, we might need a, 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 a Mandela. You know, we need a, that kind of person, and new generation will have that because new young people that will have a much more diverse education. Not being restricted to that doctrine, being you know, being you know, yeah, served. Yeah, yeah. Can I just jump in to remind the audience, in case for those who don't know, that um, the Korean War hasn't ended. There's only a armistice. There's no peace treaty, and that is the basis of this. The fact that we keep coming close to war again. Um, that there is no peace deal, and the North has no reason to believe that, in fact, they are safe. I remember when we were finishing Homes Apart at that time, because there was some little opening at that moment. We thought, "Oh, this film is already outdated because uh, there's going to be peace and there's going to be reunification." Um, and here we are now, uh, some 20 years later, and that uh, we're still in that case of division and uh, at war situation. I think my favorite my my favorite line from from the documentary is Christine where he says sometimes you feel that South Korea is one big U.S. military base. No, that always sticks with me. Um, but well, no, I, wanna, I just yeah. want to make one notation. The direct uh, the editor was Amara Chamayev, okay, and uh, also don't know anything about. I think she was a cheap. That's what we. But she was also good, you know. But at the March Maya's father is a very famous graphic artist, you know, Ivan Chamaya. He designed the number nine on the 59th Street, okay, very Chamaya, and has Aspen, you know, the graphic designers conference, etc. So we asked Mars father to design credit, but with the one condition, we cannot change. So he designed the credit without. You see it. Yeah, no human being can read. Okay, no in between. Me and JT had to accept that, right? Do you remember that? I think it was funny. You know. Um, so the film, in some way, I think, has its own, you know, whimsical, you know, background of it. And I have no idea what happened to our main character in Ohio. You know, 
Is he still alive? I don't know. Yes, he is, and, he, and he's an activist. So I have to give you a little bit more background. The premise was started with the Lim family. Lim, okay. The Lim family is also sort of eccentric. And uh, was a poor Lim, and uh, what's the brother's name? Ramsey. Huh? Ramsey. Uh, Ramsey. They had a twin. That's what the opening sequence was, the twin. So in some way, it's almost like a symbolic of Korea as a twin, but forced being separated. Okay. And the Lim family was always very progressive. Uh, Ramsey and Paul Lim's father was ambassador to UN, you know, sent by, I think, I don't know which regime was, you know, maybe, you know. One year liberal regime in between the two dictatorships. So they were very sympathetic towards, uh, no, they were always uh, promoting the unification of the Korea. And that's how we had some, you know, a route, access going to North Korea. Of course, as you know, United Nations has country who represent, but don't have a diplomatic relationship. So you have North Korean consulate, like a Cuban consulate, North Vietnam consulate, based in New York City, you know. So that's how the way that I was able to talk to the UN consulate. And with my communist, little communist background, helped a little bit, must say. I want to just say that, so we have questions in the Q&A, and we want to have time to answer questions from everyone who's here. So I'll just kind of speed us along. Um, I know that uh, the panelists, um, we all want to, we all want to talk about uh, kind of this question of, of how these films relate to um, anti-Asian violence uh, that's happening now. Um, I had been thinking about um, polling data from the Washington Post showing that a third of Asian American voters um, voted for Donald Trump in 2020. Um, there's also a 30 Six percent increase, I believe, in Asian American votership in 2020. Um, so, you know, I think there's an idea that being an Asian American means you're progressive, or that relates in some vague, in some vague sense to a progressive politics. Um, and I know that you know th this has been a flashpoint for the question of the hashtag Stop Asian Hate, which um, you know some some people do not use pointedly because it suggests more policing more sentencing, which targets uh, disproportionately Black Americans. Um, so I wanted to just hear from the panels, you know, uh, from the panelists, what do we make of this? Like what's, how, how in your practice and just in your own kind of personal, um, you know, belief system, how you sort of, uh, you know, square this circle and, and, and think about um, Asian American as a productive, as, as, a, as a productive kind of political sort of identity or, or um, in instances when it's not, how do you kind of reconcile that? Um, oh. Oh. I was just, I was going to say a couple things, um, you know, going off of the 
the discussion on uh, Korea Homes Apart, um, you know, one thing the film really made me think of, especially its intertwining of the personal and the political, you know, which uh, Christine and JT do so well, is like there are moments where, you know, the the narration has a line like uh, South Korea is really insecure about its image or North, North Korea wants this, but then you see what North Koreans or South Koreans are doing and it really drives home this idea of the nation versus its people and, you know, the idea of the nation being constructed by the powers at the top, often being dictated by imperial powers like the U.S., uh, you know, versus what you know, the aspirations of the people are or what they're kind of told that their aspirations should be. And so it really made me think about how, like, a big part of anti-imperial organizing, especially in the present day, is to kind of let go or to interrogate nationalism, which can be difficult for those of us who are from recently decolonized countries where the formation of a nation state is closely related to anti-imperial movements. But I think that the film really made me think about, and I think it's relevant to today as well, whether we think of America. I mean, Peter, you said the idea that like Asian Americans are progressive because I, I mean, I'm not, I guess, technically Asian Americans since I, you know, grew up in India and moved here about eight years ago, you know, I'm on a visa. Um, I didn't really have that idea because, until I was 18, my world was India. Like, I didn't think of myself as Asian. And there are all these different nuances, like, where I grew up, right? There are there, its own little, like, imperialisms and uh, and uh, social strata. And so it's very difficult for me to think of Asian American as a monolith because I can't even think of my identity, especially when you describe it using a nationalist term, like when you... I can't think of a nationality as a monolith. Um, so I think one one thing is really like thinking about how, like I was saying earlier, the term Asian American can be used, I think, as Juhyun said, primarily as a means of rallying around an anti-imperial solidarity and maybe thinking beyond national or nationalist affiliations, which have often been used, I think, to generate more violence um, you know, than to, you know, generate images of solidarity. And in terms of uh, stop Asian hate, I have also been a little wary of that term, that hashtag. I think uh, the word hate makes me wary because, again, I think it builds into the idea of racism being the psychological, you know, response. You know, it builds into the idea that um, anyone who's committed... an act of violence uh, that is racially motivated has like a hate in them. And of course, if you ask anyone, they'll always say like, oh, you know, I don't hate anyone. I, I don't see color. And it leads to this obsession over whether there is racial bias, you know, in an act of violence. And I think it's more important to not talk about hate, but talk about imperialism and to talk about exploitation. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. It's more important to talk about what made the victims vulnerable to violence, I think, this is my opinion, than what made the perpetrator committed? Because I think the reasons, you know, that people become vulnerable are historical and racism is embedded in those larger systems that 
for instance, Sarah's film that the clip she showed is thinking about, you know, um, and the word crime, like hate crime, the crime also makes me a bit uncomfortable because crime is a statist and legislative term, you know, like we're, we're watching and teach our children, you know, there is a limit to how much we can entrust the state or the judicial mechanism to tell us what's right or wrong. So I don't think our struggle can be for to demand the state to recognize what acts of violence should send people to jail, because that's what, like, we're saying when we are asking something to be recognized as a crime. Um, I don't have, like, an easy answer out of this, but I just think we need to be, if I think our our organizing just and thinking needs to be abolitionist and anti-imperialist to really serve Asian American communities. So we really need to be careful about how we deploy, uh, you know, these terms. Um, yeah, I, I actually agree with a lot of what, what you said. Um, I like this question a lot because um, I felt it really spoke to the fight that we're currently engaged in, you know, um, the home care workers fight against EPC, you know, they're calling for a boycott of it. Um, you know, it shows that the idea of, you know, this Asian identity, you know, exactly the question you're posing is, you know, that it doesn't, right? Um, the, the bosses are Asian, as are the workers, right? And they clearly don't share the same interests. Um, so last month, the workers called for a protest in front of the agency. They were really angered um, because CPC had just gotten millions of dollars um, from the state budget um, to fight Asian violence. And it made them stop and really think, you know, say like, what the hell, you know, um, we've been suffering violence, you know, at, at their hands for years. You know, they refuse to stop these 24 hour shifts. Um, they refuse to pay back, you know, their stolen wages and they refuse to, you know, acknowledge that this is happening. Um, but they're going to get, you know, millions of dollars from the state. Right. Um, so at the protest, the, the elderly Asian woman blew, um, you know, because they're distributing these uh, safety whistles. Um, I, I'm sure you guys have seen it um, if you're in New York. Um, you know, they blew it, you know, it's supposed to be like a protection against violence, right? So they blew it at the agencies, right? Um, and they stood out there showing, you know, their, um, you know, kind of the, the trauma to their bodies that this, um, that these, these like really long hours and these 24 hour workdays, um, have caused, right? Um, it's, it is violence, right? It's, it's physical violence. It's mental violence. Um, and, you know, to all of this, protesting, you know, their only answer is, well, we can't stop what we're doing unless we get even more money, right? We need more um, funding in order to stop this, right? So, you know, I think on one hand, it, you know, our Asian identity can, can be something that, that unites and, and bounds us, but it also, you know, can be used against us, right? Um, it's been very commonly in our community that we are um, oftentimes more exploited by those who, who look like us. Um, and now we even have, you know, so uh, uh, currently running for city council in District 1 is Jenny Lowe, who is, you know, a career banker and has been on the board of CPC for 30 years. Um, you know, she was, you know, she sat on the board and I think was maybe the board president while this, you know, 24 hour work, they really proliferated. Um, and workers are really angry at this as well, right? Um, how dare she, you know, represent our community, you know, like, like sit in government, you know, to do this. But um, you know, I think we're seeing more of that too, right? We're suffering from more um, misrepresentation, right? And exploitation um, on this larger scale at times, right? Um, because, you know, now, you know, they, they sit, you know, in the seats of power. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I talked about before the, the sort of like, um, you know, the use of, you know, race, racial, racialized stereotypes, you know, that pits us against other working people. Um, and, um, you know, I think in your, the, the clip that we saw, um, um, in the, the Vietnamese refugee one, right? Um, the, the gentleman who says that, um, you know, uh, it's a common tactic, right? To, you know, let the poor fight the poor. Um, so they can better control us, right? Um, we see this all the time. And I think sort of, um, you know, uh, the whole like stop Asian hate, right? Um, sort of slogan, right? It's not only calling for more policing. I actually think, you know, it's not just like a secondary impact, right? Of, of the policing that, uh, that targets the black communities and uh, black and brown communities, but it's actually directly sowing, I think, racial tension amongst our communities as well, right? Cause it actually is like putting all of our attention to, um, violence that only happens on, on the street, right? And saying that like the hate and violence can only exist there and really covers up, obscures the fact that, you know, actually the, uh, you know, the most egregious violence, you know, comes from the hands of the system, right? Like it's, it's kind of imposed on us, right? Um, you know, and then you see like, you know, on the news, of course, like all the perpetrators of this violence, right? Or other people of color. Um, so I think, you know, it's really important that like, you know, in, especially in this time we're talking about, you know, um, stopping violence, stopping hate, that we help to sort of amplify, you know, when there are people, when there are workers out there um, pointing to this kind of systemic violence, right, that is hurting us, that is killing us, um, and saying, like, no, this is not just on the street, you know. Uh, one of the homeless tenants who spoke at the at the protest last month said, you know, the street violence, you know, if you get attacked on the street, it hurts for a moment, right. I mean, I know there has also been some, you know, tragic deaths and such, but she says this sort of violence, you know, it, it hurts us, you know, day after day, year after year, you know, it's killing us slowly. Um, so, you know, I think those things, right, um, the violence that we face at the hands of, you know, our employers, our landlords, um, the state, um, and this is how, you know, so at the protest, we actually said, you know, stop racial violence, right, um, to, to kind of, you know, uh, highlight that, right, that this is um, affecting many, many of us, many different communities of color, and that we have to unite right, against that common, common enemy. Yeah. Yeah, really resonating with that. And I appreciate both of you for bringing these really important points uh, to the fore. Um, I think reflecting on Stop Asian Hate, um, a fundamental flaw with it is that, you know, it doesn't really come with a political program, which is something that the both of you have been speaking to. Um, Devika, you were talking about how, you know, it very much individualizes, it makes it this question of like hatred that's just sort of out there in the ether that needs to be dispelled. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the state and the capital system have become very good over the last 50 years at sort of retooling, um, white supremacist ideology, uh, to kind of, uh, present itself as the solution to um, a lot of these problems. Um, you know, they pose it as a question of hate because if it's just a question of hate, then you can fix it with love and you can fix it with, um, you know, kind of uplifting or celebrating um, people who are denigrated within the culture. Um, I say that because... DEI programs. Yeah, sense. DEI programs, <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, I logged into Netflix the other day and then it took me to the special AAPI Heritage Month menu where I had to, like, Flick through all these terrible movies to eventually, you know, like get to the thing I wanted to watch. Um, I'm getting targeted um, stop Asian hate ads from Wells Fargo. I don't even have a Wells Fargo account. I don't know why that's happening, um, but it is. Um, and I think it's a demonstration of the fact that, you know, 
uh, we live in a time where capitalism is very much demonstrating that it can also do identity politics, right? And I think that uh, we need to really question this moment because I, um, it's not only about, you know, what counts as anti-Asian violence, right? The violence of the landlord, the violence of uh, the employer, the violence of the military doesn't count. But, you know, these sort of random attacks that become these spectacular viral moments are, you know, the thing that are presented as like, oh, this is the totality of anti-Asian violence. This is the only problem we need to fix. Um, and I think that, you know, the... Uh, the way that the problem and both the solution are constructed is very intentional because uh, it brings us back to this idea uh, that, you know, we can rely on the system to correct itself and that if we just, uh, you know, buy from the right businesses, if we, you know, watch the right Hollywood movies, uh, if we change our hiring and our admissions practices um, and really just kind of like keep playing the game that eventually, you know, things will just correct themselves. Um so I think we should be very skeptical in this moment um, that, and, you know, also to consider that, you know, this visibility around uh, anti-Asian racism and anti-Asian violence may not necessarily be a good thing because the ideology that undergirds it is really not one that presents any kind of challenge uh, to the existing system and therefore doesn't really offer solutions to the problems that we face. Um, I think that if we... Uh, consider what it really means to be Asian American and what it will take for Asian Americans to be liberated with all of the complicated, uh, you know, kinds of ethnic and linguistic, national, religious divisions that come with that. Um, I think we still get to this core, uh, core answer that, you know, we can't really address either thing without looking at Asia and the Pacific, you know, as regions and the imperialist and colonial conditions in our homelands that led to the creation of Asian America. And so, you know, I think uh, we can't have a political program that's just about celebrating identity. We need a political program that is an actual political program. And what I mean is that, you know, we are trying to actually accomplish things. Uh, we want to actually um, uh, liberate Asian Americans and do that through the liberation of Asia and the Pacific, i.e. we need to get the U.S. military out of our homelands and we need to restore political and economic sovereignty uh, to the region. And we need to um, also, you know, like address uh, questions in the lives of Asian Americans and Pacific Islander diasporas that are not just about random violence on the street. I'm not saying that, you know, it isn't a problem, but, you know, there's this whole, um, there are all these other ways in which we're made vulnerable uh, through the immigration system, uh, through our, through um, through the jobs that we work at, um, through the medical system, through prisons and police and surveillance. Um, and, you know, I think that the spotlight is not being shown on those things because uh, that's the ugly side of the system that is trying to court us and tell us that, you know, it can actually fix the problems that it, that it created. Yeah, I, I would, I, I really want to continue this conversation, although I want to be mindful of the time um, and also Christine and all of yours, all of yours is time schedule. So I'll, um, we can move to the Q and A uh, section and and um, see what we can all answer together. And uh, uh, let's see, JT, did you have any questions kind of queued up? Sorry, I didn't. Um, I have asked you one person asking, um, wondering what, uh, and I I don't know if it's to the panel or to Christine about what Asian Asian American films should be. Um, can they be anything, or do they have to maintain their lineage as a socially committed practice? 
ha. I think Asian American film should be human film. We're gonna talk about our good part and bad part about us. You know, I mean, at the beginning, right? Don't you think? I mean, there's a lot of、uh, messed up shit, you know, among the Asian Americans. You know, I remember when I grew up in China. You don't listen, whack, whack, whack the kids, okay? You know, and you know, then Korea, some norm. You know, the language was using towards the children was absolutely unacceptable. But it's a part of Asian upgrade, you know, right? And and I also think that was also what I really liked about the mythology. You know, all Asian country had this crazy, crazy mythology. You know, you know, Koreans especially. You know, and my grandmother swears she actually saw dragon's tail. Believe or not, okay, lot of mythology, and I think it is also very fascinating to me. And also, I think to deep down, you know, we are not really we are. Like a human being, there are great part of being Asian, and there are awful part of a culture that we had to deal with. China, for instance, centuries binding the foot for three inches—that's murder. Okay, murderers. And I also think it is very interesting to for young people to look at how we have been portrayed. In the mass media, historically, even today, in the mass, you know, in in the media, and for me, because people like, you know, early filmmakers, you know, that we able to break that, you know, stereotype, and we only talked about positive aspect. We never talked about negative. So positive cannot exist without negative negative aspect. That's what I feel. Number one, number two. Nowadays, you got, you can make a movie with iPhone. You can make a movie anything, you know. So, recording, you know, certain incident, you know, you may just put the back burner, not knowing, but someday you might able to, you know,、uh, thinking about that could be a very important, you know, material. And. There, we need more voices about diversity among the Asian Americans. You know, I mean, I would love to make a movie about how Koreans, Japanese hate each other. <laughs> Sorry to say that it's true. You know, it's very true. Okay, how you know all these things? It could be even a comedy. You know, and that's the kind of reality I like to reflect. I think Christine, you're getting at the fact that a lot of times、uh, media about Asian Americans is geared towards a white audience, and when things are geared towards a white audience, we lose these nuances of how do the legacies of Japanese occupation in Korea affect, you know,、um, attitudes, you know, one generation down or things like that. We kind of we we lose those things and issues of positive image and respectability politics. I think these are issues that,、um, you know, American films are oftentimes obsessed with, or at least the ones that. Get produced and get funding,、um, so that's definitely a problem. I want to mention Alana Mohammed's question. Juhyun's comments made me think there are a lot of big tech interventions on beha- behalf of stopping hate. Parentheses. I got stop Asian hate ads on Tinder.、Uh, 
I'm wondering if anyone has any thoughts about tech's investment in imperialist policies and use of Asian labor. I'm wondering if anyone can. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right on the money. Um, you know, like, yeah, stop Asian hate. We'll put that in advertisement. But you know, don't you dare try to unionize, or I'm revoking your visa. <laughs> like, um, that might be a little dark, but I do think that that's the actual nature of a lot of these big tech companies' relationships to Asian labor, and particularly Asian immigrant labor, uh, both in terms of like the engineers and the other um, technical professionals who get you know hired in, uh, often. Uh, you know, effectively taking away skills and uh, workers, you know, from their home countries, uh, while also, you know, like not really receiving the full value of uh, uh, of what they're producing. Um, but then, you know, there's another layer of, you know, especially in the case of Silicon Valley, like all of the Asian immigrant labor, which, you know, operates the society at large, whether that's, um, you know, domestic workers who are cleaning houses and looking after children, uh, restaurant workers who, you know, are keeping the food scene that, you know, all the techies adore so much running. Um, we could really like check off every single key industry. And, you know, I think that, uh, yeah. So I think that uh, point works on multiple levels and I certainly agree with it. Um, I, I just wanted to add to that. And also to the previous question, I just wanted to say like, in my view, uh, about, you know, how Asian American cinema should be. Like, I think cinema in general has a responsibility to be advanced, like an ethical and equitable vision of the world, or to at least not worsen, like not contribute actively to, you know, uh, oppression and exploitation. But I don't think Asian American cinema has a special responsibility. You know, I think filmmakers and cinema in general have that responsibility. Um, I just wanted to say that because I feel like the idea that Asian American artists or filmmakers or, or workers in any way are held to a higher, like, moral standard uh, doesn't make sense to me, you know. I think every all of us are should be held to a higher moral standard than we are, especially right now in all industries. And with the tech question, I mean, I think Juhyun uh, covered it. I think the... Um, like, especially how they treat their own labor, who often do tend to be from immigrant communities, uh, just goes, like, unaddressed. And also, how these companies operate globally is really important to think about. Um, you know, for instance, in recent weeks with the COVID crisis in India, uh, there's there are tweets made by journalists or people uh, that are discussing the government's, you know, uh, incompetence dealing with the crisis or people who are giving a true picture of how bad things are, especially in rural areas. Uh, these tweets were, you know, removed. Yesterday we saw a Palestinian journalist's uh, Twitter account be suspended for 24 hours. Uh, you know, there's a lot of tricky questions about what these companies may be sending, like what kind of ads they may be sending to American users and what kind of uh, principles they might be claiming to uphold in America versus how they may be kowtowed to other governments and tyrannical powers all over the world. You know? So I think it's also really important, like these tech companies have led to the globalization of the world. So they also have responsibility to advance a global version, a vision of, you know, equity and justice that's not not selective. Uh, Christine, we have a question from your colleague, um, Dr. Rosemary Mealy, who I know 
is, is an activist. Um, Dr. Mealy, if you're, if you're here, if you're listening, I also wanted to have you on the panel. So I apologize that I, that I couldn't. Um, this question is for Chris. One of our strengths as Black, Latinx, and Asian American and Indigenous women was how we worked together in the National Alliance for, of Third World Women. We did great work. Do you think such an organization would be viable or possible during these times? Peace, Rosemary Mealy. Everybody see this book? Yes. Are you are you finding Rosemary in that book? No. I can show it. You see this? <laughs> that's that's you just uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I was the few uh non black and uh, black panthers power to the people of the pit. Rosemary was a member of a Black Panther woman. And because this is what I love, Rosemary. Yeah, also love the women's movement. Black Panther was so macho. And the women within the Black Panther Party and organized. And uh, we started an organization called Third World Women's Alliance. Right. So ultimately... <laughs> If I answer Rosemary's question, woman is going to be in charge of the world. I'm sorry, most of guys do not like it. We've been not only repressed, exploited, and uh, shot up from the money sector of uh, decision-making, you know. Yes, I have done it myself. And just let the audience know I was the first non-white full-time faculty hired by Tisha School of the Arts, famous school, Spike Lee, Ang Lee, a lot of Lees, okay? Um, and also Peter could be a witness. It took me two and a half years to implement a course called Korean cinema. Meanwhile, every semester, we have a Hollywood cinema, Italian cinema, German expressionism, blah, blah, blah. To implement that through the education system in itself, it takes a tremendous amount of effort because you didn't have any support. We had constituencies. Students want to learn something about non-white education. But the system itself right now is still very much top down. Um, Peter, can you repeat the, 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 the question of a mm-hmm. rose you want to really, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Well, uh, how we worked together in the National Alliance of Third World Women, we did yeah. great work. Do you think such an organization would be viable or possible during these times? See, past is always the present. No, Rosemary and me, we've known each other for way back, you know. And uh, today, ironically, we come together to celebrate a woman who made a major contribution to women's movement, African-American women's movement, African-American history movement, Afeni Shakur, Tupac's mother, Tupac Shakur's mother. And she's passed away, but people like us 
we're still living, we're able to re. We were able to look at the history from a woman's, woman of color's perspective, and so I am so happy that I'm happy that I have this opportunity to work with the women who have never had opportunity for such endeavor, and we will remember Afanisha Ku for many many years to come. Tupac is a very, very famous rap, you know, singer. I used to babysit him. Can you believe it? Ha ha ha! I didn't know how to babysit. You kidding me? Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> But and because the contribution Athene had made to the African American history is not being documented, and it is our responsibility revisit. The missing chapter, and I feel very, very proud that I, and you know we were able to work together. Yeah. So before I turn it over to JT, so that we can end tonight, um, I just want to ask if anyone has anything they want to mention they're working on. I know Christine, you're working on this documentary about Fanny Shakur. Um, Devika, I just have to mention that I was in Glasgow at the Contemporary Art Museum and I saw your interview of Barry Jenkins and Sight and Sound in the bookshop. It was very exciting. It's a Glasgow. It's really fun to find、uh, find your name there. Oh, that's that's so nice. I I,、yeah. I can't like I'm picturing. It's hard to picture like my writing out there as real art. It's out there. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> yeah.、Um, yeah. Is there anything that anyone else wants to mention or any、I'll、events coming up? A couple things. Uh, for everyone. Um, all this month. Uh. Visual Communications is hosting the、uh, Asian Pacific Virtual Showcase. So there's many other films, including the one that Sarah's group、um, is part of.、Uh, so please go to the Eventive site and and support. Also, the, there are numerous Asian American and、uh, Third World News Group、uh, organizations that are part of the showcase, and、um, you know a lot of the films are playing all month. Also, consider supporting and checking up. On the Flushing Workers Center and Notable for Crane Community Development, and Third World Newsreel, we have、uh, seminars going throughout the year, and we also do a production workshop. We'll be having other events this summer, so please check check us out. And thank you, Peter, and thank you everyone. Thank you, Chris, team, Christine, for.、Uh... Can I add? Absolutely. I mean, JT has been unsung leader of.、Uh... Uh, the World Newsreel. I left the Third World Newsreel because what? Do you remember what? I don't even remember why. <laughs>、uh, I think who killed Vincent Chit? You know, I think that was. And the Third World Newsreel was Newsreel was founded in 1968 by many of a radical, very unhappy white filmmakers. And it is become a very important historical document for the American media history. Then, when I took over, became the one newsreel for ten years. Then JT came along, and JT took over.、Um, it was hard to run a nonprofit organization. I must say, you are always begging. 
pay for money funding. But we, we did make the history. We were part of American history. That's important, more than anything else. Oh, I had one thing I wanted to share, Christine. This is this yeah. is in, at, at homes apart. There you go. Uh, I love that. And you see how big the camera is. That's the camera she's talking big. about. Yeah, this is my problem. Now I have a side. The camera weighs about thirty pounds. God, it was amazing. You know, it was a huge. It was designed for men. And I had to wear the battle belt across my flat chest, but that's okay. That's Johnny Saki and JT. And uh, it was in Beijing. I think uh, this picture was taken in Beijing. Mm. Okay. Well, again, yeah, thanks the panelists. And uh, yeah, JT. Well, unfortunately, you, and Sue Robson not able to join us, and I think she is one of the important person, uh, a founder of uh, the One Newsreel. And we had some crazy time. Uh, we made some crazy movies, as you can see. And teach our children. I did all the animations, believe it or not. I had no idea about animation, but one talent I have is I know how to draw I think inherently. And uh, also I was trained as an architect. And so we drew, we drew the, you know, the whole thing. At the time, the film had to cut the negative, cut the negative, okay? Negative is very intriguing. You had to scrape a part of the frame and you glue them together. Went to the laboratory, the whole thing fell apart. <laughs> because we had no idea how to glue those things. And came back, oh my God. And uh, we live in the attic at the Paul Robson's home. And we had sheets everywhere because you cannot have a dust. <laughs> and it was a, literally a labor of love. You know, you can see. That was the love towards to it. By the way, those days, early days, the newsroom were not allowed to have individual credits. So that's, the film doesn't have our credit on the film. Until we took over, Thurwood, became a Thurwood newsreel, the first film we did was um, uh, Spike to Spindles, Inside Woman Inside, and... Uh, What's the one in the Mohawk Nation and the To Sleep and Larry Boras film? To Sleep. A dream is what you wake, you wake up. up from. Huh? A dream is what a you dream wake up from. A dream is what you wake up from. And then we began to have a credits because we felt it's very important to recognize the people who worked behind. It's been a long time. Thank you very much. And uh, we, I love the panelists. I just wish we can be me in person. I hate this fucking Zoom. <laughs> and on that note, thank you, everybody, thank all you the know. panelists, and everyone who. I want to approach. I want to approach the other panelists.